is Colorado Edition from KUNC. Water scarcity in the West is cutting into supplies for cities and farmers. I think it's been described as a slow-moving train wreck. On today's show, we explore how hydropower fits into the current drought and how it could help keep electric bills down. Plus, we hear about a program that's screening newborn babies for a rare and deadly genetic disorder. And we get tips on how to get away from the crowds when camping. That and more, coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. The water levels behind the Colorado River's biggest dams, like Hoover outside Las Vegas, are at record lows. And that means the historic drought in western states will probably start showing up in people's energy bills because those dams can't produce as much electricity. KUNC's Luke Runyon has that story. Standing at the base of Glen Canyon Dam in northern Arizona, the Colorado River flows out of Lake Powell, cold and clear. On the canyon walls, moss grows where water from behind the dam seeps slowly through the red sandstone. And the air buzzes with electricity. If money had a sound, this would be it. Bob Martin runs the dam for the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation. Above our hard hats, thick metal transmission lines run from its powerhouse to towers on top of the canyon. When heat waves scorch the west, as they have this year, Martin says the dam can release more water to meet the ramped up energy demands in places like Colorado Springs, Mesa, Arizona, and the Navajo Nation. You can hear the electricity. It's keeping the lights on at businesses, the AC on at your home, power to the hospitals. Lake Powell is the nation's second largest reservoir. Later this month, it's projected to hit its lowest point since it first filled in the 1960s, warming temperatures from climate change and the West's inability to conserve are to blame. Inside the dam, water moves through generators to churn out power for 5 million people in seven western states. As the lake declines, its power production does too, because there's less water pressure to drive the turbines. Not enough hydraulic head, Martin says. The dam's capacity has dropped about 20% since the year 2000. It's not sustainable to continue to release that volume of water when you have, you know, not that much coming in. It's a difficult conversation in the sense that all we have to deliver is bad news. Clayton Palmer is with the Western Area Power Administration, or WAPA, which distributes the dam's power. He says with the lake on the decline, this year his agency will have to purchase millions of dollars in extra electrical power on the open market to fulfill their contracts. Conversations with the customers have been centered on how much less should you deliver or how much more should you raise your price. WAPA has already started the process to raise its rates by 14% for at least the next two years. The Colorado River's dams are still generating hydropower. What's uncertain is what another year as dry as this one could do to power production in the watershed. I think it's been described as a slow-moving train wreck. Eric Kuhn is the former general manager of the Colorado River District. Because it's taken us 22 years to go from full to where we are. Kuhn says it takes a series of back-to-back dry years to put the river's power production in jeopardy. Lake Powell has now seen two in a row. One more could set in motion a complete loss of hydropower at the reservoir. 
None of this should come as a surprise, says Eric Balkin of the Utah-based environmental group, the Glen Canyon Institute. You know, I think for a lot of people, the writing's on the wall. Balkin's group advocates drawing down Lake Powell on purpose, letting its water flow downstream to fill Lake Mead. Environmentalists have called for draining the lake for decades. They see its dam as a symbol of the West's water excesses. Doing so would also, of course, mean removing a major source of hydroelectricity. The Lake Powell we knew in the 80s and 90s probably isn't coming back. And as far as the climate data goes, you don't have to be a mathematician to, to see the trend line, right? Which shows temperatures likely to keep rising, putting strains on not just the region's water supply, but its energy grid too. I'm Luke Runyon. Colorado babies born with a rare and deadly genetic disease have new hope thanks to a newborn screening program. In a joint project with Wyoming, a dozen infants have been diagnosed early with spinal muscular atrophy, and that early detection is essential in order for any treatment to be effective. Jennifer Brown has written about this for the Colorado Sun, and she's with us now. Jen, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on, Erin. Now, newborn babies are routinely screened for a number of things very soon after they're born. Spinal muscular atrophy was not on that list until recently. Can you talk about that and and why it has been so life-changing to have this disorder added to those very early screenings? Spinal muscular atrophy, which I'm going to call SMA, um, like the doctors do, was recently added to the newborn screening list in Colorado. They started screening babies for this in January 2020, so we're about 18 months in to this program. And already in those 18 months, they've identified 13 babies, and I heard another one over the weekend, which would make it 14. But just from taking a bit of blood from a baby's heel soon after their birth, they're able to send that to the state lab at the state health department and determine if they have this rare genetic disorder. And the reason it's so important to know that um, right after their birth is that there are now treatments available to help these babies survive because in the past, you know, parents wouldn't realize perhaps or get to a pediatric neurologist until the damage from this disease had already been done and there was no reversing it. And before that, there was no treatments available. So babies would just basically die. And a lot of times before they turned two years old. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned what's really made the difference is incredible advancements in being able to detect SMA and then treat SMA. You talked with a pediatric neurologist, Dr. Julie Parsons, who's been seeing cases since the 90s. I'm wondering how her work with this disorder has changed since then. Yeah, interviewing Dr. Parsons was pretty amazing just to hear what she's been through in her career, which spans, you know, about 30 years she's been doing this. And in the early days, if she had a baby with SMA, the treatment basically was care for the baby as they passed away. And she talked about how she recalled at the old children's hospital in Denver, she once had three babies with SMA at one time, and she would just go in a few times a day and basically watch them die. And it was just devastating to care for, you know, these little babies with this genetic disorder. But what has happened in her career is just, it's uh, mind-blowing, really. Um, 
1995, researchers were able to identify the gene that causes SMA. And since then, there's just been so many advancements. And, you know, most recently, a few medicines have been approved by the FDA. And two of them, Children's was involved in the clinical trials. One is called Spinraza, and it's a spinal tap injection, basically, that tries to fix this gene function. Um, it's very complicated, but it basically means that the body will start producing that protein that's needed to make muscles work. It costs $125,000 per dose, and a baby would need six doses in their first year, and then they need three doses for the rest of their life. And a second drug recently approved called uh, brand name Zolgensma, it costs $2.1 million, but it's a one-time infusion um, into the baby. And the faster you can get it in there after their birth, the better it works. I mean, that is pricey for these treatments. Is it difficult to get insurance to cover it? It definitely was in the beginning when these medicines were very new. They were approved in 2016 and 2019. But Children's Hospital basically has a team of, you know, a billing team that's on the phone trying to get these treatments covered. And now they, they're getting it done. And basically, after someone's had a baby, they've met their deductible, basically, by the birth. And so, um, you know, one family I talked to that had the one-time infusion for their baby, the actual explanation of benefits was over $3 million. Um, But they believe it's going to be covered. How common is it to add a disorder to be screened for to that list of routine newborn screenings? Well, as, you know, modern medicines are, you know, being discovered all the time, I guess, they are adding diseases to this list. So Colorado now has 39 diseases that newborns are screened for. It is quite a process. You know, it took about a year for the state health department to hold meetings and gather input. And they wanted to hear like, you know, mainly what's the point of telling a family that their baby has this devastating disease if you can't help them. And so they wanted to hear about these clinical trials and the, these new drugs and what they were doing for for babies and children that were getting the drugs, you know, later in life. And then in Wyoming, they don't really have a place to treat these babies. So they got together with Wyoming and said, we'll send all of your positive cases to Children's Hospital Colorado. So it's quite the process. But I think, like I said, the main point is If there's something that you can do about it to save these babies, like why not let them know immediately so that their family can, you know, start the process. Jennifer Brown with the Colorado Sun. You'll find a link to her reporting on this at our website, KUNC.org. Jen, thank you so much. Thank you, Erin. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Outdoor recreation is always a staple of life in Colorado, and during the pandemic, the number of people participating in outdoor activities went up to an all-time high, according to a study from the Outdoor Industry Association. One of the downsides to this increased activity was that it became more challenging for many would-be campers to find themselves a space to pitch their tent. So Tommy Wood, a reporter for BizWest, set out to see if he could find some tips from a few business executives who have experience seeking out the most beautiful places off the beaten path. Tommy Wood is with us now. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Start us off with some background here. We know outdoor recreation was extra popular during the pandemic because it was one of these activities we could do safely. But what did that increase in activity actually look like? It was pretty stark and and it's kind of hard to find 
data on exactly you know how much more people are participating in outdoor activities um just because uh, uh, if you're going off and doing dispersed camping there's no record of that for instance but in terms of camping at designated campgrounds where it's trackable the outdoor industry association published a study that said about 48 million americans went camping last year that's about 16 percent of the entire country which was the highest that, that, that they had uh, recorded. So I think that gives a pretty good perspective on just how much Americans were trying to get out and do outdoor activities more over the pandemic than they really had it at any other time uh, that we've been keeping track of this. Anecdotally, I know I've spoken to many people who have shown up to the trailhead a little too late to find a parking spot or a little too late to the online reservation site to uh, book a site. You spoke with some Colorado business leaders about how they handled getting away from these crowds and finding these spots. What did you learn? I think the, the most important thing that I learned was really that if you want to get away from the crowds and if you want to have you know kind of a beautiful secluded spot that you know I think everyone wants when they're trying to get out into nature, you have to do more work than ever to really get those spots and, and to really to really find them. And that, that was the main lesson I learned is that it requires a lot of legwork, it requires dedication, and you might actually have to learn some skills to really take advantage of what we have out there in some remote locations. Yeah, and you mentioned skills. In reading your piece, uh, there was a lot of talk about maps. Yeah, I think map and compass reading particularly can be really helpful if you're trying to you know, find a really secluded camp spot. Once you learn how to read a topographical map, there's a ton of information that you can, you can gain from that that can tell you whether or not a place could be a good camp spot. If you look at a topo map, you can see if there's water nearby. And you can kind of tell just looking at, at the topographical lines around the area you're looking at. If there's a lot of steep peaks around a, a flat area, you can guess that there's probably a good mountain view there and that may be someplace that you want to go. So once you learn how to how to kind of interpret just what everything on a topographical map uh, means, that, that can be a big help. And, and so can learning how to read a compass. But the other thing is that really nothing beats just getting your boots on the ground. So, you know, once you have kind of identified like a, a, a broader area where you think there might be some good camping spots, really getting in there and driving around on on the back roads, driving on forest service roads, you know, parking your car and hiking in for a mile or two to to see if there's anything good off the road. It it really can require um, a lot of literal legwork. From the conversations I had with with these executives about this, once you put that work in, it can become incredibly rewarding. Well, I am curious about why you chose to speak to executives about this. And, uh, you know, I'm wondering if they offered kind of a unique perspective on this. You know, in Colorado and in Boulder and northern Colorado, Fort Collins area especially, a lot of the executives are very outdoor minded. Part of the reason they, you know, moved to Colorado in the first place is because this is a great place to to pursue an outdoor lifestyle. So I, I think that that's part of it is that the population of executives who who enjoy these types of activities, they tend to congregate in areas where they can do those activities. But I, I think another big part is that, you know, with, with the mindset that you have to have to kind of be an executive, um, you know, you really have to be able to be hands-on and, and take a leadership role. And you really have to be willing to put in, to really get your hands dirty and put in a lot of work to, uh, 
to achieve the outcomes you want sometimes. So I think this is kind of a natural extension of that. Um, you know, a lot of times these people are, are perfectionists and they have very high standards. So when they go camping, they don't want to just go to the first campsite they can find and call it good. They want to find the best camp spot. They want to find the spot that fits exactly what they want. And, you know, in a lot of cases, they're, they're used to, to achieving those things in their business life. And I think that mindset kind of carries over into their hobbies. Tommy Wood is a reporter for BizWest. You'll find a link to his reporting on all this at our website, KUNC.org. Tommy, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. Denver hosted Major League Baseball's All-Star Game on Tuesday, where the top players in the National and American Leagues faced off in a much-anticipated showdown. But it's far from a one-day event. There were plenty of fan fests, 5K races, and a celebrity softball game leading up to the big game. And on Monday, a crowded stadium at Coors Field watched the precursor to the game, the 35th annual Home Run Derby. Unlike the All-Star Game, in which each team has a roster of 32 players, including at least one from each team in the MLB, the Home Run Derby has a much smaller pool, featuring just eight players across the entire league. One of them was Rocky shortstop Trevor Story, who in his short time with the team has positioned himself among its most valuable players. But with a fast-approaching contract expiration date and even faster-approaching trade deadline, it's possible that the Derby was Story's last big stint with the only major league team he's ever played on. Colorado Edition's Alana Schreiber has more. If you flew into Denver last weekend, chances are Trevor Story welcomed you. Not in person, of course, but over the airport loudspeaker. Welcome baseball fans. This is Rocky shortstop and two-time All-Star Trevor Story. As host of the 2021 Major League Baseball All-Star festivities, we hope you will enjoy your visit to beautiful Colorado and the Mile High City. The irony is, Trevor Story wasn't even set to play in the All-Star game. Each year, players are voted in by the fans, and this year, he didn't make the cut. But he did get a chance to shine on his home turf during Monday night's Home Run Derby. In the Derby, eight of the top sluggers in baseball face off mano a mano. Each player is paired with another competitor, and whoever hits more homers in the first round moves on to the next. On the morning of the Derby, players gathered at individual tables to talk to the press, and Story was swarmed by reporters, all wanting to know how this underdog was strategizing for the competition. Um, hit more home runs than everybody. <laughs> so, I know it's pretty simple, but... Um... You know, I'm going to try to try to keep my effort level down. I know it's going to be really high when it comes time, but um, really use my timeouts right and um, just really not overexert myself to where I get too tired. But for Story and for Rockies fans, this year's Home Run Derby has an added weight. It might be one of his final appearances as a Rocky. He is scheduled to be a free agent at the end of the 2021 season. That's Patrick Saunders, who covers the Rockies for the Denver Post. Knowing that the Rockies are not a contending team, if they trade in before the July 30th trade deadline, they get some uh, young prospects in return. This time of year, teams have to consider whether they are buyers or whether they are sellers. And my most estimations, the Rockies are sellers, or at least they should be. So if the Rockies want to make some money off their star shortstop, they'll need to trade him, and fast. And if they don't trade him, Saunders thinks it's unlikely he'll sign with the Rockies again. Either way, Story's days on the Rockies seem to be numbered. And of course, the looming potential trade isn't lost on the player himself. I mean, obviously it's a possibility, right? Um, you know, I can't really say for sure 
what I think, but those decisions are all out of my hands. So um, I guess we'll see. So would the Derby tonight kind of be like your swan song? You know, in the case that I'm not a Rocky, then yeah, you know. But yeah, it's uh, something I want to do for the fans, no doubt. Leading up to the night, Story had his teammates, both current and former, to support him, including Cardinals third baseman Nolan Arenado. Man, he's uh, such a great player, you know, a good friend of mine. So he's in the locker right next to me, like it was back in the day. So uh, feels like he never left. Arenado was a star player for the Rockies from 2013 to 2020, but in a shocking move from management, was traded in the offseason. Between the loss of Arenado and now the potential loss of Story. It's unclear how much more Rockies fans can take. Once again, Patrick Saunders. In the economic realities of baseball uh, and trying to build a team for the future, it makes complete sense to try to trade Trevor Story. But the average fan would look at this and they would say, wow, we traded Nolan Arenado, who some consider maybe the greatest player in franchise history, and now we're going to trade our other star? That doesn't make any sense. But at least for this week... Fans got to see the two players reunited in Denver. By the time the Derby began Monday evening, it was pretty clear who the favorites were. There was Shohei Otani, the star pitcher for the Angels, who's also a slugging designated hitter, leading the league with 33 home runs. To understand how rare it is to have a player equally talented in offense and defense, think of it like a soccer goalie who's also a lead goal scorer. Then there was Joey Gallo of the Rangers. He's more of a hot streak player, with the second most home runs this season. And of course, Pete Alonso of the Mets. He only has seven home runs this year, but won the Derby in 2019 and was looking for a repeat. So when it came to likely winners, Trevor Story was far from the favorite. Yet, on Monday night, he was definitely the fan favorite. Cheering down the first baseline was Jillian Jibe. As an official scorekeeper for the Rockies, she spends most of the games in the press box. But Monday night, she was in the stands with the rest of the fans. I don't have to be here tonight. Um, I'm not working. I'm not on the clock. But uh, there's no way I would miss it. Like, no way I would miss this. Who are you rooting for tonight in the home run derby? I'm rooting for Trevor, hometown hero. It would be so fun if you want it. I want that for him. When Story came up to bat, the energy was high. He dazzled the crowd by cranking out home runs that soared into the stands on a rainbow-like arc. And in between hits, he got a special visitor at the plate. Once again, Patrick Saunders. One of the cool things of the night, I thought, was when Nolan Arenado was on the field. It was not in the home run derby, but came up to Trevor and was kind of consoling him and then turned to the fans and waved his arms and tried to get the fans really into pumping up the volume for Trevor's story. The two are very good friends, and it, it was really a cool moment to see Nolan Arnato really reach out to his former fan base to pump up Trevor's story. I thought that was a really cool moment. And against all odds, Story did it. With 20 home runs, he beat his competitor Joey Gallo in round one, and the crowd loved it. Trevor did outstanding. He hit the second longest home run of the night, 518 feet. But you could tell it meant a lot to him. Ultimately, Trevor Story didn't win. The title went to reigning champ Pete Alonso. But the night didn't really feel like a competition, more just a celebration of baseball. Again, Rocky scorekeeper Jillian Jibe. The coolest part about it is there's so many different fans. Like, there's so many different kinds of fans, so many different allegiances, I guess I would say. Everybody is just baseball fans. That's the coolest part. 
fans weren't just rooting for their own hometown heroes. They were cheering for every home run that disappeared into the night sky. Scanning the crowd, you could see jerseys representing every team in the league. Not surprisingly, one of the most popular jerseys was Rockies number 27, Trevor Story. For Patrick Saunders, it seemed like kind of a send-off. I do think there was some emotion. There's some sentimentality from the fans thinking, yeah, this could be his last hurrah. And it was their chance to show their appreciation to a really good shortstop and a really good person. And I think Trevor felt that too. I'm sure he was nervous. He actually told me so for a couple of reasons. One, just being on that stage in the home run derby is a big deal. But also I'm sure he felt the pressure of the fact that his days as a Rocky might be, and I emphasize might be, coming to an end here in the next few weeks. All the way around, yeah, it was a pressure pack night for Trevor Story, but he came through with flying colors, no doubt. While the ending of Trevor Story's story is still yet to be written, his contributions to the team will not soon be forgotten. While he might soon leave the only team he's ever known, at least he'll go out swinging. Alana Schreiber, KUNC. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we'll hear the story of a local music video show that debuted on public television before MTV. Its impact on music fans can still be felt today. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.